Good morning, everyone. It is really good to be in the Word again this morning. Did you guys have a good weekend? Who had a bad weekend? Like a really, you don't have to tell us about it. You can just say, I did not have a great weekend. Because I do have some good news for you. Um, I went to bed and Bafana was still playing. So when I woke up, they won. That's good. All right. Um, those of you who don't know, the African Cup of Nations is happening. Um, and we are in the semifinals. That's quite good. Um, now, this song for me is, is so fitting as we conclude this morning with our series on being set apart. And during this series, we've really amplified the holiness of God. And, and I think in a sense, we've been confronted with the aspect that God is holy. That we've definitely been challenged in areas of our life where God is holy and we are called to be like Him. Um, where His holiness also purges us from things that is not like Him. But then we're also drawn to His holiness because holiness is attractive. His holiness is beautiful and you and I are drawn towards Him. And um, over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking you on a, a story narrative. So if you've missed it, you can go and listen to the podcast online. And we've been going through different boxes. Now I'm not going to elaborate on that too much this morning. But we started off with holiness lost, that in the beginning the story went this way where sin entered into this world and then there was the separation between what is holy and what is not. Then week two we spoke about holiness being restored, that through the work of Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, that there has been a way made possible for you and I to be redeemed back into God's presence. And then last week, Donnie spoke about holiness lived. And, and I loved what Donnie spoke about last week, is that our conduct will flow from who we believe we are in Christ. And that yes, we are set apart, but we're not removed. We're not taken away from this world. We are in this world, yet not of it. And then this morning, speaking about holiness, completed and there is a purpose to the story. There is a conclusion to the story. And it comes full circle this morning. Whom of you have um, read a book and then you didn't finish it because you lost the book? I have a story like that. It's not necessarily a good story for church. Um, but, yeah, I lost the book because I drank too much and I fell asleep on a bus. And then I forgot my book in the bus. <laughs> I never read the end of that story, so I made up my own conclusion. But just this morning, this story that we are busy with has a conclusion. And if you want to find the beginning of the Bible story, you go to in the beginning. All right? Genesis 1, in the beginning. And if you want to find the end of the story, you go to the end of the book, which is the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is... In some ways, a little bit of an intimidating book, and sometimes you read that in parallel with the book of Daniel and some of the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah. And the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. All right, everybody say apocalyptic. Now, when you hear the word apocalyptic, you hear the word apocalypse. And when you hear the word apocalypse, thanks to Hollywood, we've got images in our mind, like the end of the world. All right, there's that song. It's the end of the world as we know it, but we feel fine. 
Okay. Now, I've got some images that I want to take us through. When you hear the word apocalypse, it's like, yeah, that's something going to happen. Then the world looks like this. That's it's a little bit light. Um, but that's basically a city that's burning. And then in the end, it goes towards this. And then we all say, next slide, the end. All right? That's sometimes what we think about when we think about apocalypse and even when we think about the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is not a doomsday book. The Revelation 1 verse 1 starts with, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So in the book of Revelation, primarily, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it gives information about what will still take place. And in the book of Revelation, we find a lot of signatory language that goes with apocalyptic literature. Like there's this dualist thing happening where it speaks about what's happening in the natural realm where you and I are seated, but also in the same time what's happening in the spiritual realm. It speaks about things that are happening in the present, but then also things that will still come to pass in the future. And this book is primarily written to seven churches to give them instruction, to correct, to showcase to them things that will still happen. But the ultimate purpose of these letters was to magnify the glory of Christ in the second coming. That's the goal, is to really showcase the glory of Jesus in the second coming. Now, our text this morning is towards the end of this story, and you can open your Bible in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your word is trustworthy and true. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit also makes your word known to us, that it reveals the scripture to us, and it makes mysteries known to us. Lord, I love that there are mysteries in your word, but you desire to make them known to your people, and we ask that you will do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 21, verse 1 to 7, you can read with me on the board as well. So John is saying, speaking, and he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That is a very tragic line in the Bible. That when there's a new earth and a new heaven, there is no more sea. Some of you love the beach. Some of you surf. Some of you would have liked to have the opportunity to serve in eternity because you've got eternity to try. Good news, it's figurative language. If you go back into the book of Revelation in Revelation 13, it speaks of the sea being the place from which the dragon comes and where rebellion is birthed. So when he speaks here about no more sea, it's not necessarily speaking about no more physical sea, but there will be no more place for rebellion to rise up. Everybody say amen. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them 
and, their, and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What I love about this text is it gives us a a glimpse into the intentions and the purposes of God's heart. You see, even though in the book of Revelation, if you backtrack a bit, this is also the story of Jesus coming back and determining final judgment over the earth. But the pinnacle, the climax of this story is not that Jesus wants to destroy the earth. No, he makes all things new. That's the pinnacle. That's the climax. That's the whole reason why Christ came, so that we can be restored back into our dwelling place with God. And it goes full circle. If we backtrack all the way to the beginning in Genesis 1, where God dwelt among His people in the garden. Sin separated us from God, but now God has made a way for us to be restored back in relationship with Him. And here there will come a time where God restores everything as it should be. Everything will be new. Everything will be good. That is good news. Now, in much humility, um, I have not experienced much pain and suffering in my own life personally. We've gone through things. We've had things that we needed to process. But I've not, I don't have a spouse that has been diagnosed with a critical illness. We have not lost a child either before birth or after. I do not have a sibling that is a drug addict and I don't know where he or she is. I have not come to a place of financial ruin where we lost everything and I literally need to start from scratch. I've not gone through a divorce. So if I look at my own life and the things that I've gone through, yeah, there's things that I've needed to process with God, but in light of what other people might be going through, my suffering is not really comparable. Now, I don't know what scars you may be having in your life or in your heart this morning, but I know that I'm not blind. When I drive through the streets of our city, my heart breaks for the injustices that happens in and around us. My heart breaks for the poverty. My heart breaks for the hate crimes, the murder. When you open up a newspaper, it's quite evident that all is not good in the world we live in. All is not as God intended it in the beginning where he said it is good. I read a post the other day of someone. Um, it's, a, it's a place of safety in, in Bloemfontein. How do English people say Bloemfontein? Bloemfontein. Bloemfontein. Yeah. Bloemfontein. Um, and they just took in two 
children. One is a couple of years old, and the other one was a three-day-old baby. And my heart sank. Um, I, I think there's definitely something that God is stirring in my heart as we are first-time parents, and everything hits me harder. But I'm thinking, who throws away a three-day-old baby? What must your circumstances look like to say, I don't have capacity in my heart or in my life to take care of this child? And when I am aware of the suffering and the brokenness in the world we live in, and I read this passage in Revelation 21, I get to look beyond my own life and say, Lord Jesus, you have got something good prepared for the earth. That there is a time coming where there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more orphans. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more racism. Because Jesus is coming and is bringing everything full circle. And He says, I will make all things new. That is a reason to glory in Christ. The rest of Revelation 21 is a description of what this new Jerusalem will look like. And then in Revelation 22, it continues and says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which was previously given in the garden and then after the fall of man, there were angels guarding the tree of life so they no longer had access to it. Here God restores the tree of life and you and I have access to the tree of life once again. There's no more a resistance. There's no more a barrier for you and I. And it says, and this tree which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God's promise to Abram, Abram, I will bless you and you will be a blessing unto the nations. When I think about brokenness and I think about the nations, we think about the war between Russia and Ukraine. We think about the war between Israel and Palestine. We reflect back on our own continent, the DRC, Somalia, uh, Sudan, the list is actually quite long when we think about the turmoil and the horrific events that has taken place in the nations over centuries. And here the book says that the leaves of this tree were past tense for the healing of the nations. You see, those leaves are, have this healing ointment that is placed in traditional medicines where a, there would be a, a wound and you would place the leaf and it would start to bring healing into that wound. And this tree brought healing for the nations. And I think it's important then that when we think about the story of Christ and the story of holiness being completed, that we need to look beyond just our own lives. That the whole story about Jesus is not just about me. It's not just about my family. When God speaks about what the future will look like, that there will be tribulation, there will be trials, but don't worry that I will look after you, I will protect you, I will cover you. God is not just speaking to me as an individual and thinking about me and my family and our safekeeping. He's thinking about the nations. And you and I have the privilege of being caught up in this marvelous story that includes us, but is so much bigger than us. So we have a holy God 
who has orchestrated this master plan to reconcile and redeem us, bring us back into relationship with himself, but then ultimately restore everything as it should be. Everything will be made new. Everything will be good. Now, in light of this, how do we respond? And I want to give us two things this morning. The one is that we prepare. And um, what does preparation look like? Because we have spoken now about God who is holy. Most of us have watched movies like 2012 and all of that, where it speaks about what the end of the world looks like. And when you have to picture that a holy God is coming back to the earth, and the Bible does say that He is bringing with Him final judgment over the earth, where do you find yourself? Is there an excited anticipation for the return of Christ? Or is there a fearful anticipation to say, I hope I've done enough. I hope when He comes, He doesn't say to me, Get away from me, you who practice lawlessness, as we read in Matthew 7. I never knew you. That would be one of the most horrific and terrifying moments of your life, to stand before Jesus thinking that He will accept you and embrace you, but then He says, get away from me, I do not know you. So in what way do we prepare for the coming of Christ? And I want to give us the imagery of, like it said in Revelation 21, A bride preparing for her wedding day. The bride gets herself ready. Some of you are recently married. All right? You had to go through the whole ordeal of wedding photos, right? And then the men, they get you to dress up at 9 o'clock to have 10 minutes of photos. Then you get to take all your clothes out again. And then there are five hours of photos with the bride. Something about the bride takes a little bit longer. (laughs) But the bride gets herself ready. Now, two things that's important from the Bible is, one, the Bible speaks about us in Christ becoming sons of God. Now, sometimes we'll say we are sons, and then we include the women to say, and daughters of God. And we we can do that, but we must not forget that there is a spirit of sonship that is connected to being a son of God. There's not a spirit of daughtership. And the reason is not because God favored some sexes above others. In historical culture, Being a son had certain things connected to it, identity, inheritance, and authority. So when you are in Christ, man, you are a son of God, unleashing your identity, your inheritance, and your authority. Ladies, you are a son of God. You carry a spirit of sonship, identity, inheritance, and authority. And now men, we are the bride of Christ. You and I are the bride of Christ. You don't become the bridegroom and Jesus the bride. He is the bridegroom. Amen? So, you and I are the bride. And I want us men to put on our emotional buttons and think as a bride would feel and think before her wedding day. You are there? Okay. For some of us, it's easier than others. All right. You you all look beautiful. Okay. Because that's what they say at the wedding, right? Like, they'll say to the, to the bride, you look so beautiful, and then, Donnie, oh, thank you for pitching. Okay, that's all. you all look beautiful and radiant. Now, in Hollywood, again, we see these movies where it portrays these wedding days, and sometimes you have a bride that runs away, all right? She gets cold feet, and then she doesn't pitch for her wedding day. 
Sometimes you get a groom that had his bachelor's the day before the wedding and then stuff happened and he got it put on a bus and then he ended up in a different city and he's missed his own wedding day. Sometimes something happens building up to the marriage and they don't get married anymore. Or on the wedding day, there's this massive scandal that gets exposed and the whole wedding feast is ruined. Now that is not a biblical picture of marriage. You see, we get engaged not as a hope of something that will happen going forward. There's a picture of, there it is. So that was Riet's engagement ring. Um, I decided that we'll, we'll get a ring from a friend, sister, who was a jeweler, and then Riet and I designed her wedding ring together, which was quite a cool experience. But when I proposed to Riet, I didn't put this ring on her finger saying, hey, I kind of like you, so let's see where this goes, and in a couple of months, if I still feel the same, let's do it, for real. Like, this wasn't a test, and the real thing comes later. No, this was the yes. When we got engaged, it was a decision that I have already chosen you. So in the preparation for the wedding day, she's not thinking, sure, I hope he still feels the same in four months. I hope he doesn't change his mind. I hope my personality doesn't put him off. I hope that fight we had last night doesn't make him feel differently about me this morning. No, that engagement ring was as good as the ring. We were now just in this preparation phase. Now, I'm obviously a very good husband. Um, imagine what type of bridegroom Jesus is. We've spoken about His holiness. And the holiness of God encompasses, overshadows, overarcs all of His characteristics. He's holy in His judgment, yes. He's holy in His discipline, yes. He's holy in His faithfulness. Our bridegroom is holy in His commitment towards you. Our bridegroom is holy in His promises that He's keeping. Our bridegroom is holy in His love and affection towards you. Our bridegroom will not disappoint. And in the same way, like my wife got to walk around with an engagement ring as a promise of what is to come, our bridegroom gave us something as a promise of what is to come. Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14 says, In Him, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Friends, there is something incredible that God did when you and I chose to surrender our lives to Christ and become one with Him to be in Christ. That as a down payment for what is a sure thing to come, he gave you His Spirit. And the Spirit of God is as He is, holy. And the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. So God deposits His holiness inside of you as a testimony, as a guarantee, as a seal to say, you have been chosen. I have asked you to marry me. The wedding day is just a formality. We will get there. But this that I have already deposited in you is a guarantee for what is still to come. 
That's a glorious picture. So that means that the believer who is in Christ, who has been filled with the Spirit of God, has no fear anticipating the second coming of Christ. Because there is no way that the bridegroom will reject his bride. No, he prepares her. And in that day, he receives her in a fullness, in a completeness. So this text in Revelation 21 is very much written to those who are in Christ. And then for those who are in Christ, you have received the Spirit of God, a Holy Spirit, dwelling and abiding inside of you as a seal and a guarantee where Jesus says to you, I have chosen you. But I'm not perfect yet. I have chosen you. You wear the sign. You wear the ring. You have been sealed for me on that day. It changes the way we prepare, knowing that there's no fear of rejection, no fear of judgment on that day. And then secondly, we proclaim. In Revelation 22, it continues, and I'll read a couple of the verses from um, chapter 22. Um, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. What was the, the, the language used in Revelation 1 verse 1? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's going to tell you about things that will happen soon. So it speaks about an urgency. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. And behold, I am coming quickly, verse 12, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Verse 17, and the spirit and the bride, the spirit and the bride, the, the bride, the church, cannot accomplish this task apart from the spirit, and the spirit chooses to do it with the bride. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts, come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 20 and 21, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's the end of the book of Revelation. It ends with this evangelical call to say, if you can hear this invitation, come. If you've heard the invitation, proclaim, come. Because there is life um, readily available, freely available for all who are willing to come. One of the, the parables that Jesus spoke about, also speaking about the end times, is the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, where the king prepares the feast, and he, the people who were invited did not come, and he sends out messengers to remind, and the messengers were killed, and the king was angry. And all of that is also figurative language, speaking about the end times, but also addressing the religious, the Pharisees among that crowd to say, your Savior, born from you, has come and you've rejected him and ultimately you will crucify him. And this message has now been made available not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And in fact, they will be invited in first. So now it goes on to say in Matthew 22 verse 8, Then he said to his servants, the king, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, 
go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is the place where we see this imagery of this wedding feast that has been prepared. And this invitation is now being sent out. Go and find any who are willing. And the scripture says they found anyone, whoever they could see. Yes, you can come. You can come. Both the good and the bad, all were invited in to the wedding feast. Uh, the band can come up. Oh, there you are. And, and there's the simplicity of this invitation that is extended to all of creation, to everyone. But then there's the specifics of the task that is also entrusted to the bride, to the church. You see, those who have heard have now been instructed to also invite. That there is still room, there is still space. And the end picture is this wedding hall will be filled. It goes on in verse 11 and says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And the custom in those days were that up upon arrival, the host of the wedding would provide for you a garment to put on. And part of this um, reason or the tradition was that everybody would look the same. There would be nothing that would, that would say you are of a higher class than this person. So everybody could mingle and connect and have relationships on an equal level at this wedding. So no one could come in and dress themselves more eloquently to try and showcase themselves because it wasn't about you. And here they find a man who does not have on the proper clothing. So the king said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the friend was speechless. You see, it's not just that he forgot to dress properly. Because upon arrival to this hall, he would have been presented with a garment to wear. And he refused it intentionally. This was an insult to the king. So it's not just that he didn't dress properly. and was like, oh, he should have thought before he came. No, he rejected the offer that was given to him upon arrival. And then the king says to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him, out into, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And when I read this, and just thinking about this anticipation of our king who is coming back. And we get to prepare for our holy bridegroom who is coming. And as the book of Hebrews says, he has dealt with sin already. He's not coming now to deal with sin again, but to receive those who are waiting for him. There is something extremely humbling about this story about Jesus. Because so often in my own life, I have this tendency to want to clothe myself. You see, again, if we go full circle and we go into the book of Genesis, where sin entered into the world and they became aware of their sinfulness, but they became aware that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so often I find myself there to be aware again and to be naked and ashamed. And then the tendency is to clothe myself with my own good works 
with my own efforts. And the Bible says that these clothes, these garments that I now put on are like filthy rags to the Lord because they have zero ability to properly dress me for this wedding feast. And this gospel story is a humbling story because it requires of you and me to acknowledge, yes, that we are not clothed properly, maybe even still naked and ashamed. And we need to be able to stand up and say, yes, that is me, so that we can be clothed properly for the wedding feast. And this clothing properly is not something that you can earn. I love that parable. Go and find any who are willing to come, the good and the bad. Not looking for those who were good citizens and those who were bad citizens. Because upon entry, you will receive the, you'll receive the right clothing. There's a part this morning where I really felt God wants to minister into those of you who are in Christ. You are born again. But when you think about the second coming of Christ, there's a fear in your heart that, have I done enough? Will Jesus reject me? Maybe there's things in your life, where like, Yo, what if those things are exposed on that day? And then Jesus says, sorry, I do not know you. And God wants to speak into your heart this morning about a holy, faithful bridegroom who has already placed a ring on your finger as a surety, a guarantee that when that day comes, you will not be rejected. So now, when we prepare for our bridegroom to come, it's not um, from a place of being fearful, but there's a joyful anticipation and expectation to be met with Him. Then there's a space where God is, and Donnie touched on this last week as well. We have been set apart but not removed. Friends, that wedding hall will be full. And by the choice of God, in His sovereign will, it is by the Spirit and the Bride that cries out, Come. And those who hear says, Come. And all who respond get to drink freely from the river of life. There's this place where you and I who have been redeemed, who have been marked with the Holy Spirit, have been tasked with this message to call out, come. Who? Anyone. Your neighbor, your family member, your colleague, that person that you don't like, that person that you think cannot deserve it. Anyone. Anyone who is willing to respond. The invitation is, come. Come and receive freely. Come and be clothed properly. And then this morning, I do have an invitation for, for some that might not be clothed properly. That maybe you are sitting here this morning and you're in church and you're maybe even doing good works. But God is calling you to a place of humility this morning to say, will you allow me to clothe you properly? It requires of us to be undressed so that we can be dressed. So that the wedding garment can be put over your shoulders. I want us to close our eyes. Just take a minute. 
the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Is He affirming to you that you belong to Jesus? Is He affirming to your, to your soul this morning that you have been chosen? You have responded? Is the Spirit of God evangelizing to you this morning? is asking you to respond to the invitation and if you have been if you have responded if you have been clothed properly are you in partnership as the scripture says the spirit and the bride offer this invitation come where your life is currently actively being mindful of a holy God who will return, calling others towards this wedding feast.